Okay. Thank you, Brother Jeremy. Uh, we do have over in the gym um, some booklets that Southern Evangelical Seminary uh, sent uh, over here for you guys. It's called uh, Why Trust the God of the Bible, a short case for the truthfulness of Christianity. And uh, it also, uh, the blog on there, hashtag why do you believe, ses.edu is the website for school. Uh, table of contents, what is biblical faith? Can we know anything for sure? Does God exist? Can we trust the Bible? What does all of this mean? Uh, but that's just your interpretation. What can we conclude? And there's an appendix for methodology, an appendix for inerrancy, which I'll be talking about t this morning, and an appendix on evil and suffering. So these booklets are free in the gym. Uh, you can pick one of those up as well. Jeremy mentioned a book uh, that I did. I really did. I, I didn't write the book. I only wrote one chapter in it. It's called A Festrift. I wrote it in honor of my Ph.D. mentor, the world-renowned Greek scholar David Allen Black up at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, I, uh, what I did was assemble a team of 13 or 14 scholars from literally around the world, three continents, to, and they submitted a chapter. And I did a chapter in there. My, my chapter is out of Ephesians 2. Uh, you might recognize there's probably more Bible verses in my chapter than most of these scholars. Deal with a lot of highly technical stuff. Uh, pretty much useless for most of you, but... I wrote it for academics anyway, so uh, it's not a popular level book at all. Steve has some popular level good apologetics books, uh, especially the uh, Right from Wrong book. What's the name of that book? Right for you, but not for me, because that's what you're going to hear out here. You got some of those copies down here, right? So uh, you guys need uh, that book, I'll just tell you that. I will go ahead and put a plug in for... Um, we are doing the uh, one titled uh, Historical, I'm sorry, uh, um, we're doing the slide titled uh, Biblical Inerrancy, Dr. Carver, I'm sorry, I switched those up on you this morning. What did he say? Yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry. My bad. It's in the CBC Lagrange folder, and it's titled uh, "Biblical Inerrancy." CBC Lagrange. Thank you, brother. Okay. My burst. We have some flyers out here on the table. I've written in with a uh, black uh, sharpie. IsraelAlive.net. Pastor Jeremy and I are planning on a uh, trip to Israel, to the Holy Land in April, April 1st through the 10th. There's a lot of walking involved in this trip, and it costs a small fortune. But I tell people it's worth every dime and worth every step. So if you've uh, always wanted to go to the Holy Land, you can go with two characters that you know. Uh, and, uh, but you need to be getting your uh, deposit monies in. Everything you need to know, the back page especially, it's fine print. You're going to need a magnifying glass to read it. But everything you need to know is on here. You know, uh, cancellation policies, where to get the money, when, how. But uh, if you want to see, you know, pretty pictures and it looks better, if you just go to israelalive.net, there's actually a tab on the top of that page to register. You can register through that venue or you can go to the website on this travel agency. Either way, 
prices are in here. All the fine print is on here. You need to be getting your uh, registration in to those people. Uh, we'll be touring the Israel, uh, the Holy Land for 10 days. We will stay uh, uh, on the Sea of Galilee for a couple nights. We'll stay in Jerusalem for several nights. And uh, we'll, t we'll tour uh, archaeological sites, Old Testament sites. We'll tour the uh, ruins of the towns around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus performed miracles, where people would not believe and he uh, condemned those towns. And you can walk on top of the piles of rubble now that were those towns. Uh, we'll go visit the Jordan River. If you want one of us to baptize you in it, you can do that as well. Um, and uh, we'll tour the city of Jerusalem and, and all that went on there. Uh, we'll go out to the Mediterranean Ocean and tour uh, the uh, city of Caesarea Maritima where Paul was on trial before um, Felix and Festus where uh, Cornelius uh, lived over in that area. Paul set sail from there to Rome. Uh, we'll go to Megiddo, where that great last battle will take place on that plain out there. Uh, one day we'll go to the empty tomb in Jerusalem. We'll go to the uh, Wailing Wall uh, and lots and lots of other places. A lot of walking. We'll go to the Dead Sea. You can lay back and float on the Dead Sea while you read a book or whatever. Uh, we will go to the top of Masada. You can hike up or take the cable car. I can tell you which one I'm going to do. Cable car. <laughs> We'll be hiking enough as it is, but you're welcome to hike up that snaky path to the top of Masada. Uh, and um, anyway, I, I, uh, I've been to Israel a couple of times. This will be my first time leading a tour. Oh, we'll take a, a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee, so that will uh, be pretty neat. So um, what else? Uh, well, the itinerary is actually on here. We'll go see the Jesus Boat Museum. We'll go to the Mount of Beatitudes. Uh, we'll go to Cana, uh, John 2, the first uh, miracle. Um, Nazareth, Megiddo, Mount Carmel, you know, Elijah. Um, we'll go to Jericho, see the ruins there. Um, the city of Bethshan, that's an interesting place for sure. We'll go to the Mount of Olives. Bethlehem, uh, the shepherd's fields, the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. You can go in the Catholic or Franciscan or whatever Orthodox church there. Now, to go in the uh, Catholic groups and other religious groups have built huge stone buildings over the centuries, over the top of all the holy sites. So for Bethlehem, you'll go in a door about this tall, so you'll have to kneel down or basically crawl like I'll have to do to get in it. And then you go downstairs, uh, and they'll actually have a metal star in the floor, and they'll say, this is the actual spot where Mary gave birth to Jesus at, but like they can know that's the actual spot on the floor, but uh, you will uh, see these sites that some of them will certainly be the very place where Jesus actually walked, where Paul was, where Elijah was, and so forth. Um, we'll walk the Via Dolorosa and stop at the nine stations on the way of the cross, actual route that Jesus took, and uh, Simon uh, of Cyrene dragging that uh, cross uh, for him, um, Masada, En Gedi, it's over on the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea as well. And uh, then Jerusalem will stop the last day at the Israeli Museum and the Shrine of the Book, uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are kept, the Isaiah Scroll, and also the Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust uh, Museum, which is very interesting in and of itself. And so uh, I'm going to uh, talk today about uh, biblical...
inerrancy. And so the first thing I want to do, though, for you is um, read a passage of Scripture, Psalm chapter 1, so that y'all can say, well, Preacher Mayo stood up there and preached for an hour and didn't even read the Bible. And, um, of course, I'll quote Scripture for you anyway. But Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man or lady who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. First of all, listen to that verse again. How blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That is, you don't listen and imbibe somebody's unbiblical worldview. You don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Right? You go out here talking to people who don't follow the Lord all the time. You're, I'll tell you what I'd do. You know, with no concern for God, Christ, the Bible. How blessed, happy, joyful is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Because if you walk in the counsel of the wicked, how blessed the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. If you listen to their ungodliness and unbiblical worldview, sooner or later you're just going to stop and you're going to hang out. Notice the progression. Then how blessed is the man who does not sit. Oh, now I'm comfortable with their unbiblical worldview. So now I'm really hanging out. Did y'all see the progression? You're walking in their council. Now you're standing uh, in their path. And now you're finally you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. And you find yourself a prodigal or a backslider and you're stuck in a rut. How many men and women in the 30s, 40s, and 50s have I met who are stuck in a spiritual rut? Because they started first off listening to the counsel of the ungodly. Nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But instead, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. That should be, Christian, your relationship to God's word. I meditate in it day and night. Right? Christian TV going, Christian radio going, Christian preaching, reading my Bible, anything I do ought to be biblically or Christian based. Feed my soul, right? With God's Word. Um, and so uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. This person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Y'all live in farmlands out here like I do. Go about mid-August by a pasture and see all the brown grass out there. But you see little green streaks going through there. You know why there's green grass running in little streaks through large fields? Because there's a branch of water there, that's why. And that's the only reason why. That grass is green and it's growing lush because it's sucking up water from a water source. That's what God's Word is for you. You suck up the water from the water source, you will produce fruit in its season. And then in contrast, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
Then over in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The judgments are, of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Six synonyms for the Word of God. Six adjectives for the Word of God. What it does and six results of what it brings to the Christian's life. There's your sermon outline, brother. Thank you, Dr. Carver. Let's talk about biblical inerrancy. What is biblical inerrancy? Or is the Bible totally accurate in every detail? Now, I know y'all have had a storm down here and I turned in on this end of Charles Street yesterday and, you know, I've stopped because, you know, guys have signs, road construction or they're cleaning up yard debris. But I want to show you another crazy sign as well. It says, Biblical Inerrancy, Dr. Wentz says, can you believe this? Y'all know that ain't LaGrange, though, because there's snow over there on the left side of the road. Oh, well. I want to talk about biblical inerrancy, and I want to talk about total biblical inerrancy. And I want you to understand the difference. Three reasons the Bible can't have any errors. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, Steve Garofalo might notice, but uh, I actually uh, was given uh, the basics of this these set of slides uh, by Norman Geisler's son, David Geisler. He gave me these slides to use, so I've adapted Dr. Geisler's in the first part of this presentation. I've, I've added some, I've adapted his, and then I've added some more material at the end. But this first argument is Dr. Geisler's. If y'all are not familiar with Norman Geisler, you really need to read some of his books. I'm going to be sharing primarily uh, from a book, Defending Inerrancy, Affirming the Accuracy of Scripture for a New Generation by Norman Geisler and William Roach. And then also the big book of Bible difficulties, Clear and Concise Answers from Genesis to Revelation. I recommend these two and also the big book of uh, Christian Apologetics. And the one I mentioned this morning earlier, the popular handbook of uh, Biblical archaeology, which I require in my course on biblical backgrounds and criticism. So uh, I highly recommend this, uh, this uh, material by Norman Geisler. But here's his arguments, three reasons the Bible can't have any errors. I want you all to read carefully this word, can't. Three reasons the Bible cannot have errors. And so we are saying... Not just that it does not have errors, but it cannot. And here's why. God the Father. Reason one is God the Father. Y'all are, are, are going to memorize this syllogism, this way to think through something logically. Y'all are going to memorize this morning, because I'm memorize it for yourself. Even the teenagers, even the children, you need this. First of all, God cannot err. God cannot make mistakes. If we're talking about the biblical triune theistic God, the God who created all that exists, He cannot make mistakes. Second, secondly, the Bible is the Word of God. Now you can get, through, uh, get to that point by reasoning as well. Clearly. Quite easily. God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God. And the logical conclusion is then, therefore, the Bible cannot err. 
Y'all get this down. You make a mental note. God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. If these first two premises statements are true, then the conclusion is true as well. So if you're going to argue, argue that there are errors in the Bible, you are either saying that God can make errors or the Bible is not the Word of God. Or maybe you think both is the case. But if those two things are true, then the Bible cannot err. The only alternatives is deny God cannot err or deny that the Bible is the Word of God or both, as we said. But God cannot err. Jesus said, uh, Thy word is truth. Uh, the psalmist said, the sum of thy word is truth. Uh, the God who cannot lie, Titus uh, 1-2. Uh, Hebrews says it is impossible for God uh, to lie. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus said so. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken with that uh, statement, he's equating scripture with uh, the word of God. It cannot be broken. And the Bible is uh, the Word of God. Uh, Paul said so. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God says, now the Lord said to Abraham, the Scripture... Oh, Galatians 3. Let me get to the slide for you. Galatians 3, as a biblical studies guy, when I started learning this thing in biblical theology class and studying the old, use of the Old Testament and New Testament, on the right-hand side of the screen, this is so good. This is so good. Paul in Galatians 3 is personifying Old Testament Scripture as if it were a person. He says, the Scripture preached to Abraham. But when you go back to the Old Testament source, God said this. The conclusion, the Scriptures are the Word of God. Period. He's personifying Scripture. The Scripture preached to Abraham, saying, And uh, more, more of the same here. God says, Genesis 12, 3. Scripture says, Galatians 3, Romans 9. Scripture says. So this is a good study uh, here. And actually, um, I, I, uh, I did a similar study on this at uh, one point. As y'all know, or maybe don't know, but I've done a lot of research out of the letter to the Hebrews, published several articles from it, wrote a 353-page dissertation on it. Um, totally useless stuff on the Greek ins and outs. But at one point, I went through the book of Hebrews, and I found these reference in the book of Hebrews and the Old Testament source for it. So like in chapters 1, uh, verse 3, you have this Jewish circumlocution for God, the majesty on high. It was a way to say God's name without saying it. And he's quoting there from, uh, uh, he has the majesty on high speaking in Psalm 97. He is saying that Psalm 97 is the majesty on high speaking. Remember where I am in the New Testament. I'm in the letter of Hebrews. He says that the majesty on high is who is speaking in Psalm 97. He says the majesty on high is who is speaking in Psalm 104, verse 4. The, new, the apostle who wrote Hebrews says the Holy Spirit 
spoke in Psalm 95, verse 8. He says, just as the Holy Spirit says. He says, God spoke in Psalm 110.4. He says, God spoke in Jeremiah 31.32, the New Covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 31.33. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Do y'all notice the Trinitarian pattern here? For who is speaking in the Old Testament? He says, the Messiah is speaking in Psalm 40, verse 6. A body thou hast prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices. Behold, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will. The Messiah is speaking in Psalm 40. Do y'all understand the importance of that? First of all, the Scripture is all about Christ anyway. Uh, the greatest theology lesson ever given on this planet was Luke 24, the resurrected Christ. When he sits down with the men from Emmaus and it says... He explains to them out of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The law, the writings, and the prophets. All three major sections of the Old Testament. Jesus explained to those two guys all the things concerning Himself in all those scriptures. It's all about Christ. But secondly, I'm trying to uh, make the point uh, that you have here on the screen. God the Father is the author of the Bible and therefore it cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God, but God cannot err. Hence, the Bible cannot err is another way to say this thing. Reason two, the Bible cannot have errors is God the Son. Whatever the Son of God affirmed as true is true. Jesus affirmed that the Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, it is true uh, that the Bible is the Word of God. But the Word of God cannot err. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. Do you all see their argument? The Bible has divine authority. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4 is in, uh, interesting. It's the temptation of Christ by Satan himself. I hear too many Christians, they've been feeding at the table of Pentecostalism. They say, oh, the devil was messing with me this morning. Don't flatter yourself. The, the devil ain't even in North Carolina. Uh, 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 the devil wasn't messing with you. And, and my point is uh, that point, but it's also that we don't face the temptations on nearly the, le the level Christ faced in the wilderness after 40 days of not eating, I get problematic after four hours of not eating. Um, ask my wife. She says, you're like a baby. You get cranky and, and, and everything when you get hungry. And uh, we don't face the temptations Jesus of Nazareth faced. And what did he use as his weapon? Scripture. Scripture. That's why boys and girls, young boys and girls, children, that's why we memorize Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in my heart so that I won't sin against you, Lord. Yeah. The indestructibility. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until I... This is why I love... I did my talk yesterday on the King James... the Bible versions maze. Uh, the slogan verse on the title page of the New American Standard published by the Lockman Foundation says Isaiah 40 verse 8. The grass withers 
and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. People and beings have been attacking God's word since Genesis 3. The beat goes on. Same song, different verse. An attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. Hath God really said? That's the problem. That's the problem. It's always the problem. The unbreakability of the Scripture, the Word of God cannot be broken. Jesus said, I'm going to uh, skip the scientific accuracy one today. Uh, You can go to places like Institute for Creation Research or or others to find these Christian astronomers, uh, biologists, biochemists, uh, geologists who are demonstrating nowadays that the Scripture aligns with the sciences in their field. I want to talk about the historical, factual accuracy of the Bible. Remember, we're talking about does the Bible err? Critics have said, hey, you don't know much about the background of the Bible when it says in the Gospels, Jesus and the disciples went up to Jerusalem when they left Nazareth or Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's a big oval shape here. And they go due south 60 miles. We'll make that trip in April, God willing. Due south. 60 miles. And your Bible says they went up to Jerusalem. Aha. It's more like, aha. Listen. These guys went as male uh, Jewish uh, observant Jews. They went to Jerusalem three times a year for the pilgrimage feasts. They were commanded to go three times a year. Every male shall appear before me three times in the year, God says in the Torah. So when they left uh, uh, Galilee 2,000 years ago and they went to Jerusalem, Jerusalem sits on top of about seven hills. In fact, the tour bus will be chugging when it goes up the hill 2,000 years later. But these guys were climbing it on Pat and Charlie with sandals on their feet. They knew what they were talking about when they said, we're going up to Jerusalem. They went up in elevation. Aha. Right? The Canaanites, I showed a picture of the Canaanite altar at Megiddo uh, this morning. Canaanites, hey, your Bible, you know, decades ago, your Bible, uh, might be something like, your Bible doesn't, uh, talks about Canaanites, but we haven't found any Canaanites. Well, they found plenty of Canaanites. They found the city of the Hittites as well. You can study a course on Hittiteology now. But skeptics, uh, decades ago, you know, it was an aha thing for them. You've got to understand the track record of the Bible is impeccable. God's track record is impeccable. One of my favorite uh, instances in the Old Testament is when Joshua and Caleb come to Jericho. And they come into this contact with this particular woman, Rahab, Rahab we say. Y'all, y'all know I'm from Eastern North Carolina, right? So when I'm, when I'm in Eastern North Carolina, I am at home. I got people everywhere around here. And I know where the good barbecue joints are too. And they're mostly in <coughs> Wilson. <coughs> uh, anyway, um, what was I talking about? 
Joshua and Caleb, Rahab, thank you. Guys and gals, in all seriousness, what does Rahab say to these two guys? She says, Hey, we've heard about your God. No nation can stand before Him. He is awesome. If your God said He's coming to destroy this city, help me. That's what she says. She had heard about this God. He has an impeccable track record. And the same with His written Scripture. Because it's from Him. Jericho as well. And Ted Wright, I think, talked about that a few years ago here when he was doing archaeology. And I talked about some of this this morning. Uh, the archaeological, historical, factual data from Jericho and Jerusalem. Uh, the Bible says that Joshua, after the walls fell down of Jericho, it says he burned the city to the ground. And so archaeologists, uh, Kathleen Kenyon, John Garstang from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, when they excavated Jericho, they found the charred remains of these stones where the city had been burned to the ground after the walls fell down. Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, we'll get to walk through there hopefully uh, in, uh, in uh, April. Ga the Gallio inscription. I don't have a picture up here for you. I showed it this morning in my talk. But uh, the Gallio inscription is a stone inscription to the proconsul Gallio. He's proconsul of Achaia in the area of Corinth. In Acts uh, chapter 12, Paul stands before the proconsul Gallio. You say, what's the importance of that? We know from history that Gallio was proconsul for only one year, AD 51 to 52. And so if Paul is in uh, Achaia, the Corinth region, during that year, then everything backwards in Acts, his missionary journeys, we can trace it and know the exact year where he was in this city and this city because Luke chronicles as he writes Acts. He says, then three months, we stayed here three months and then we went there for 18 months. And then you can also date it forward in the book of Acts. The entire life of Paul just about can be dated from A.D. 51, the year 51. We know that he was in Achaia in 51 because Gallio was only prime consul there for one year. It's an external historical reference point. It's a great gift of the Lord to archaeologists and biblical uh, student, Bible students, methinks. Uh, Herod the Great, one of my favorite uh, uh, guys in world history to talk about and to study, although he was a paranoid tyrant, uh, a wacko. Uh, he died of a horrible... Uh, all scholars that I've read think uh, he died uh, pretty much from, an, uh, well, we call him STI these days. Herod the Great, though, uh, in Matthew 2, the Christmas story, Matthew's version, not Luke 2, but Matthew 2, in the days of Herod the king, wise men came from the east, knocking on the door of the palace, saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Well, Herod thinks he is the king of the Jews, so he says, I'd like to know where this king has been born to. I want to come worship him. Right, y'all know the story. So Herod the Great, uh, we now know, uh, books have been written about Herod the Great. Multiple books about Herod the Great. In fact, if you have Logos Bible software, I have an essay in the Lexham Bible Dictionary there on Herod the Great. I told you he's one of my favorite characters uh, to study uh, there. A bad argument 
for the inerrancy of Scripture. So I've given you a little taste of historical accuracy. Uh, a bad argument, uh, Geisler says. The Bible is the words of human beings. Human beings err, therefore the Bible errs. So you say, well, what's the problem here? Geisler says the mistaken premise there is that human beings always err. You think there's ever been a phone book written without any errors? Maybe. And uh, the error, human beings do not always err. For example, there could be a math book with no mistakes, a phone book with all numbers correct. The Bible did not err when moved by God who cannot err. So these men did not err when they wrote down the words of Scripture according to 2 Peter chapter 1, right? They were moved by God, the Holy Spirit. Again, we're back to the triune God. We're back to the uh, character actually of God Himself. That's the problem. How fallible men can write an infallible book? Geisler says, look at the bottom. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Jesus declared the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I said to you. That's a promise to those early apostles. John 14, a promise of inspiration of Scripture. A good analogy is the living word the Savior, the Lord Jesus, and the written word, Scripture. Uh, Christ had a divine nature. The Scripture is divine. Christ also had a human nature. Uh, the Scriptures are of a human nature as well, in addition to being divine. Christ was one in person. The Scriptures are one in proposition. Christ was without sin, was He not? The Scriptures are without error as well. So that's a good uh, analogy. And uh, so there's more of the same here. Of course, there are differences, lest some of you think, well, there are some differences, right? Yeah, the Bible is not God as Jesus is. The Bible should not be worshipped as Jesus is. Do y'all understand, boys and girls, why we meet on Sunday morning instead of other days of the week? There's six other options to choose from, right? We're here to celebrate Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. That's why we meet on Sunday morning. And y'all thought that's just what all Bible Belt people do with no reason as to why we do it. However, the similarity is both are the Word of God and the Word of God cannot err once again. Reason three, the Holy Spirit, the logic of the argument, the Spirit cannot utter errors. The Bible is the utterances of the Spirit of truth as Jesus called Him. Therefore, the Bible cannot utter errors. The Bible is a Spirit-uttered book. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and His word was on my tongue. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How is it when He, the Spirit of truth, come? However, when He comes, He will guide you into all the truth. The conclusion... Here, the Bible cannot err because the Bible is the Word of God and God cannot err. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. So, uh, we see that here. Let's move along. Oh, this is, oh, this is so good. What about apparent errors? Y'all think this is something new since the Enlightenment, appear, uh, uh, enlightenment period that people have uh, 
been skeptical of the Word of God, Augustine in the 4th century says this. I want you to read it carefully. If we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction of Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken, but either the manuscript is faulty, or the translation is wrong, or you have not understood. And I'd say that's 99% the problem when you hear people say there are errors or contradictions in the Bible. You have not understood. You have not understood. The Bible doesn't err, guys and gals, but the critics do. Geisler goes through um, uh, errors in his book. I highly recommend this book. It's an updated version and it's way bigger than the original book, Making Sense of Bible Difficulties. Norman Geisler and Tom Howe, one of the professors at uh, SES, they wrote a book titled The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. This book is worth its weight in gold. They go through 800 uh, alleged errors or contradictions in the Bible. 800 and give you an answer from Genesis to Revelation, the big book of Bible difficulties. One of the errors they say that people make is assuming that a partial report is a false report. For example, the inscription on the cross. Y'all know the placard? They would hang a placard on a guy when they crucified him in, in the Roman Empire that, that uh, wrote the charges that were leveled against the guy that they were about to kill. And the placard, Matthew says it says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Mark said it says, the King of the Jews. Luke said, this is the King of the Jews. John, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Well, if you put all those together, you get, uh, uh, you get uh, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So it is a fallacy to assume that a partial report is a false report. Here's an analogy I came up on my own, and I'm sure it has problems as every analogy does, but I think it's pretty cool because I can still smell the popcorn. But let's just say me and uh, Tyson and Jeremy go to the state fair in Raleigh. I'm sorry, Jeremy, you can't go. Me and Nate and Tyson go to the state fair in Raleigh. Y'all been to the state fair, right? Well, Tyson really likes to ride roller coaster rides, so he goes down that alley where it's, you know, your head's knocking around, you're on the vertigo, and they're playing the hip-hop music, and he's just riding rides for hours. Me, I like to eat. Can't y'all tell? So I go down that alley where there's, you know, the kielbasa and the onions and peppers are frying on the grill. Can y'all just smell that? Well, Nate... He likes to play games, so he goes down this alley over here and uh, uh, throws darts at the balloons. Misses them all. <laughs> so we come back to LaGrange. We come back to LaGrange, and some of you have never been to a state fair. You just, you know, you grew up in the big city, and you never had the pleasure of going to a local state fair. So you ask us three guys over at Coffee and Donuts one Sunday morning, what was the state fair about? What, what do y'all do there, you know? Well... Me, I just say, I have an emphasis. It's all about the food, man. Let me tell you about the food. Okay? Tyson says the state fair is about 
roller coasters, man. They have rides galore. You can ride till you get dizzy and throw up even if you want to. <laughs> Nate says, the state fair is about games, man. I want a teddy bear this tall. You know? Well, listen. We each gave a partial report, but were we in error about what was at the state fair? No. No. No, we weren't. So that same analogy, that same uh, fallacy that Geisler and Howe go through applies to so many apparent contradictions. Like, well, one gospel writer says there was one angel at the tomb. The other says there was two. Geisler says, well, wait just a minute. Where there's two, there's always one. One writer just emphasized one, or maybe he only saw one, or maybe one was bigger and brighter than the other. The same analogy with uh, when Jesus is coming through Jericho, Jericho and there's two blind men. Well, another gospel writer says there's one blind man named Bartimaeus. Probably because he's yelling out louder, Hey, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. If you were blind and thought a man was coming by that could heal you and you really thought he could heal you, wouldn't you yell out too? I would. And so the one gospel writer is emphasizing the one who was running his mouth the most. He called his name Bartimaeus. The other gospel writer just has a different emphasis. He says there was two blind men. The other gospel writer did not say there was only one uh, blind man. He did not use the Greek word monos for one. So there's no contradiction there. What is going on when people claim that is they are in error by assuming that a partial report is a false report. And that one fallacy covers just bukus. That's a word that means a lot. A lot of alleged errors in uh, the Bible. Errors uh, of assuming that uh, divergent accounts are false ones. Matthew says there's one angel. Jesus said there's two. Uh, Geisler says, wherever there are two, there's always one. It never fails. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, Judas went and hanged himself. But Acts says he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out, gushed out when he hit the rocks at the bottom of that short cliff in the Gehenna Valley there on the south side of Jerusalem. Geisler and Hal say sometime after hanging himself, his body fell to the ground, broke open, and his entrails gushed out. Error of forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical human language. They'll say, uh, it uses everyday observational language. This is not unscientific, it's merely pre-scientific. So it speaks of the sun standing still. Uh, People say, hey look, the Bible, David says, from the early rising of the sun to the setting, the Lord's name is to be praised. Now come on, now that we're... Uh, now that we have something called scientists, something you Bible-thumping Christian evidently never heard of, scientists tell us, you know, that the earth rotates on its axis at 27.5 degrees and also revolves around the sun. But look, when you get up every morning and watch WRAL TV 5 or whatever station y'all watch down here, and Greg Fischel, right, is he still the weatherman around here or in Raleigh? Yeah, Okay. And he gives the weather. He says, the earth rotated at 6.15 a.m. this morning so that we saw the sun cracking over the horizon. Is that what he says? No. He says the sun rose, right? Even contemporary meteorologists speak of sunrise and sunset. No scientist says, honey, look at the beautiful earth rotation. (laughs) 
right? We use observational language as well. We do. Error of forgetting that only the original text uh, was without error. Not every copy. So you have a couple of numbers that seem to be jumbled around like Solomon's 40,000 stalls or 4,000 stalls. 1 Kings 4 verse 2 Chronicles 9.25. Now you can see uh, Geisler and Howe's uh, answer uh, for these couple of issues as well. Note several important things. These errors are found only in copies, not in the original text. They are rare. They affect no doctrine of Scripture. We usually know which one is correct by the context. By the context. So the gospel writer that says, uh, Jesus says uh, a certain uh, farmer went out and sowed uh, a seed on the, on the soil. And uh, he reached in his bag of seed. He sowed the seed on the soil. The mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. And uh, again, people will charge on, on this side of science and botany. Well, that's not the smallest seed on the planet. Well, Jesus didn't, was not referring to the smallest seed on the planet. As God, he knew what those seeds would be before you were born. He was referring to the certain farmer in Palestinian Israeli soil in the first century. This would be the smallest seed he would have sown was the mustard seed. Any of y'all sown any mustard seed this fall? I'm kind of late sowing mine. Any of you grow mustard greens? What's wrong with y'all? Y'all ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> what if you receive this message? I, I love this example by Geisler. You've won $10 million. Why owe hashtag or a pound, you have won $10 million. You, hashtag A-V-E, won $10 million. What's the message here? Somebody's won $10 million. Just because there's a mistake in a letter over here, you get the message. As a matter of fact, text-critical scholars, and Geisler as well, because he's a scholar on everything, uh, uh, seriously, uh, um, the more options you have with this sentence... And uh, uh, by analogy, the more ancient manuscripts you have witnessing to the Scripture, the better able you are to discern what the actual message is. If you had this 50 different ways, there is without a shadow of a doubt what is being said. Somebody's won $10 million. He says even with the mistakes, 100% of the message comes through. The more errors, the more sure we are of the message. And the Bible has less errors in the copies than this message has by percentage. There is also the error of taking the Bible out of context. What if somebody says, well, your Bible says there's no God? Did y'all know the Bible says there's no God? It does. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart there's no God. Did y'all know Jesus didn't care for the Old Testament? He said, hang all the law and the prophets. He said that. Context. On these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Uh, Well, anyway, you can see uh, how this can go. Now, Geisler says here, this is really good. There are no errors in the Bible, but there are many errors in the critics. We need to understand that as Christians. God's Word does not lie, but scholars do. 
God's Word cannot make mistakes, but human scholars today can. So who am I going to believe as a matter of principle? Well, if the Bible, if God cannot err, and the Bible is the Word of God, then the Bible cannot err. So probably the problem is, as Augustine said to Faustus, you've misunderstood something in the text. And that's why we are to obey the imperative, aorist imperative verb at uh, 2 Timothy, uh, Timothy 2.15, spudason. Give it all you've got. Be diligent to present yourself to God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You, Christian, ought to be a student of your Bible and not just have warmed over meal fed to you every week. You need to be cooking it up yourself. You need to be in it, men and women. You need it. How blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law she meditates day and night. Wow. The Jesus Seminar, I won't deal with that this morning, but I mean, this is an issue where you have, you know, 40, 50 years ago, you have a bunch of scholars sit around a table and hold up colored beads as to whether they thought a saying of Jesus that he actually said it or not. Where did they get objective criteria for discerning that at? You talk about somebody pulling a bunny out of a top hat. That's crazy. And here's one of their descendants, Bart Ehrman. He teaches over here at UNC Chapel Hill. And he's very problematic. Um, he says, This loss of the original manuscripts of the New Testament was a compelling problem. The Bible began to appear to me to be a very human book. This was a human book from beginning to end. Those of us at Moody Bible Institute, where he used to teach, believe that the Bible is absolutely inerrant in its very words. Uh, Ehrman said he apostatized, left the faith because he found variants in the text and these uh, alleged errors. He hadn't read any of Geisler's books at the time or he might have been saved from apostatizing. So another uh, current scholar, and I actually recommend uh, his book a lot. He teaches at Houston Baptist University. He was at, uh, in Nova Scotia. Craig Evans, Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels. Uh, a, a fair scholar. He is not an inerrantist, though. But this is a really good book. And he's also got a second one uh, called Jesus and His World, looking at the archaeological evidence. He says the solution for Ehrman was, is that uh, the rigid ideas about verbal inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, that's his problem. He had these rigid fundamentalist ideas that the Scriptures were totally inerrant, totally without error. That's what Evans says. He says, look, yeah, there's textual variance, but not every Bible student out there is defecting. He said, and even, even if you, know, you do have errors in the Bible, we wouldn't lose the core message. The real issue is Jesus of Nazareth. Now look at that bottom line, because this is where modern evangelicalism is going right now. Limited inerrancy is what they call it. I'll show some problems with that. And they say, well, the real issue is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what they write, I'm telling you. The real issue is the resurrection of Jesus, not inerrancy of Scripture. Excuse me. 
But what do you know about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth apart from the New Testament documents? What would you know? Hold up the universal sign for zero. A goose egg. Well, that's not totally true. You would know a little, but it would be very little. You would not know the implications of it for sure without the pages of your New Testament. The truth of Scripture goes hand in hand, men and women. Evans' assessment. The truth of Christianity hinges not on the inerrancy of Scripture, but on... Now, I called Evans out on this probably 10 years ago. I wrote a review of this book published in the Southeastern uh, Faith and Mission Journal. He actually, I don't know how on earth he got my email 10 years ago, but Dr. Evans emailed me and said he appreciated my uh, book review, that I was fair, and, but I nailed him on inerrancy. He didn't try to argue about that. I guess he knows he's an errantist, but I'm not. And, um, and uh, so I definitely disagree uh, with him on this point. Again, uh, I uh, recommend uh, this book uh, by Norman Geisler, Tom Howe, for 800 more errors of the critics. Errors of the critics. Okay. What time am I supposed to be done? Okay. I'm sorry. Um, Mark Twain said, It is not the part of the Bible I don't understand that troubles me the most. It is the part of the Bible I do understand that troubles me the most. That's right. We should not criticize the Bible. We should let the Bible criticize us, actually. There are other uh, problems. Uh, recent criticisms covered by uh, Geisler in the big book of Bible difficulties and defending inerrancy and uh, his book, popular handbook on archaeology, The Star in the East. Herod's massacre, they say, never happened because you only find it in the New Testament. Only find it in the New Testament. The New Testament is the most historically reliable document ever. Um, and you only find it in there. The two accounts of Jesus, uh, Judas' death, we've already dealt with that. Matthew's genealogy, the evidence for the history, uh, historicity of the resurrection. Oh, the resurrection of the saints in Matthew 27. Now, somebody yesterday mentioned Mike Lycona. He's a New Testament scholar. I think he also teaches at Houston. He wrote a book several years ago on the resurrection. It was touted as one of the greatest cutting-edge scholarly uh, works on the resurrection in a long time. Uh, and it was pretty good, but he actually, uh, Norman Geisler, actually cut him from being an adjunct professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary because in his uh, passage on Matthew 27, where Matthew says, when Jesus died that the rocks were split, there was an earthquake, the tombs were open, and some of the saints, bodies of the saints came out of the tombs and were walking around the city after Christ's resurrection. Mike Lycona, in his huge tome on resurrection, says that that didn't really happen that Matthew's using a literary device that Greco-Roman biographies of the time would use you know, to support a certain king or to lift up or venerate some king or emperor or something. He says Matthew's using a literary device. That, that didn't uh, uh, really uh, happen there. Um, now, Geisler deals with that specifically uh, in his books. 
He's written on it on his blogs recently. He's published on it, uh, written essays on that very point. So I'll just direct you to him. Uh, but my little two cents worth there is uh, Matthew was solidly a Jewish book, not a Greco-Roman book. At every turn, Matthew's gospel says uh, this was to fulfill what was uh, written by the prophets. He actually names, Brother Dean, he names two minor prophets and two major prophets. Matthew calls the prophets by name. And at every turn, if you start in Matthew 1, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. His book is solidly Jewish, not uh, Greco-Roman. But you can see other problems with uh, uh, Lycona's theory uh, in Geisler's works as well. So uh, Now, there is the intentionalist view out there, guys and gals. Some people say this, the Bible is only inerrant in its redemptive purposes to save us, but this does not mean that every statement in a text is factually true. Something can have errors in it and still have its edifying effect on our lives. That's scary. But mistaken and incorrect statements can't be true. And intention is not a test for truth. You need to understand that. Then there's the accommodation uh, theory. Um, how can a finite mind uh, language understand infinite truth? God does not accommodate Himself to our error. We need to understand that. Limited inerrancy then. This is the view of a lot of scholars today. A lot of good, otherwise traditionally good scholars are going down this road right here. Limited inerrancy. This intentionalist view or, or that parts of it are without error. But limited inerrancy has a diminished view of God often. It does not consistently employ the correspondence view of truth. It is contrary to the claim of Scripture about its own factual inerrancy. Limited inerrancy rejects the prophetic model of inspiration. It buys into false view of accommodation. It rejects the true incarnational model. Now, I don't have time to explain all those today. But what I'm vying for here this morning is total inerrancy. God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. Um, Mark Twain, again, I uh, have a quote from R.C. Sproul here. He says, uh, how, uh, he says, how does Jesus exercise His Lordship? Oh, he, he ran into a guy who's a former college uh, uh, classmate of his who said he no longer believed in inspiration but still believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Sproul has this to say, how does Jesus exercise His Lordship over you if not through the words of sacred Scripture? After all, a Lord is someone who has authority over others and to whom service and obedience are due. Where else than in the Bible can we find more marching orders from the Lord? Where else than in the Bible? And again, uh, I want to finally recommend to you again... Uh, recommend to you Geisler's book, The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. I want you to remember one thing, uh, if nothing else today, and that is this. God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. And if you still have problems where you think there are contradictions, you remember Augustine to Faustus. Perhaps we have not understood.
the Bible cannot err men and women. Listen. You better hope it doesn't anyway. I am staking my eternal destiny on what is written in this book. What about you? The sum of thy word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. That enter Trinitarian prayer in John 17, verse 17. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the truths of Scripture. Lord, your word is good. It's really a love letter to us, Lord. It tells us about our Savior. Lord, everything in it is from you. It is your word. Therefore, it's true. It cannot have errors because you cannot lie. You are the perfect, holy God. We need to grasp that to some degree. We thank you for the opportunity to be here at a church that uh, preaches and teaches from your word and actually believes it. And they preach it week in and week out, month after month, year after year. Lord, I pray that the Christians in Lenore County and surrounding Wayne County will understand who you are and what your word is to them. It's a lamp to their feet. It is food. It is water. It is nourishment. Lord, help them to understand they need to get into a church where the Bible is being taught. Too many churches in our land, Father, have defected from Christ, have defected from the truths of Scripture. I thank you that this church takes a stand in this part of our great state. I do pray for our state upcoming elections in November. I pray for our nation. I pray for the uh, Supreme Court issue going on. I pray for repentance in our nation. We are a nation uh, uh, full of uh, sin and avarice and greed. And Lord, we pray for repentance. It's what we truly need. I thank you for the opportunity to be here to minister your word this morning. Help us go from here today with the renewed desire to know your word, Lord, and to not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, Lord that we'll go out sharing the gospel and witnessing to others with a renewed confidence that what we are sharing from is the truth. It is the words of the eternal God. We thank you for your love and the opportunity to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Jeremy. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. well and over to the gym we're going to go ahead and uh, pray for the food and uh pastor nate i'm going to ask you if you would tyson if you maybe you could escort them over you and maria that'd be great and then uh nate i'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind uh make sure as our folks are heading out that they have a bag if you will uh stand out there and help them get uh, a gift uh thank you guys for being here again and thank you for as we close out this conference today Listen, this is important. Some of you say, well, you know, hey, I knew that. I believe the Bible already. I knew the Bible was God's word. How many of you have kids going to college or have grandkids or great-grandkids going off to a secular university in the future? Raise your hand if you anticipate or plan that. Don't be shy. Come on, raise it up, raise it up, raise it up. Yeah, most of you. And if you don't, you probably will. Guys, we're being eaten alive on college campuses with a lot of the stuff that Mel was sharing. Don't be contented with where you're at in your faith. We need resources to point them to. You don't have to become an expert on these things. But know this, this book is God's word. It's trustworthy and there are answers. 
make sure you search in the right place to find those answers. Don't ask a mechanic about your brain surgery. And don't ask a brain surgeon about your automobile. Simple advice. Don't go to an unbeliever to find answers that only a believer possesses. Let's pray for the meal. Father, thank you for the message all weekend. Thank you for the food which is prepared right now. And as we go over, Lord, I pray that we'll just enjoy this time together in fellowship. And we ask your blessing on the food, those that have prepared it. In Jesus' name, amen.